The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The New Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. Stanza four of the hymn, Christ the Word of God Incarnate, speaking there of Christ our good and faithful shepherd. Well, Jesus gets that conversation started. He's the one who says, I am the good shepherd, and he surrounds it with all other kinds of imagery, not necessarily a parable, because Jesus certainly is the true good shepherd. He's also the gate of the sheep, and he is the voice that the sheep hear and know and listen to. Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time to get into Jesus' words, I am the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. Dr. Bill Weinrich joins us. He's professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, the New Concordia Commentary on John chapter 7, verse 2 through 12, verse 50. Dr. Weinrich, welcome back. Always good to be with you, Todd. Thank you. What is maybe a common misconception or what people don't actually know much about this section that we summarize as I am the good shepherd that is helpful to know? Well, as you know, the good shepherd discourse is one of the best known and best loved portions of John's gospel. But very frequently people think that it's a parable, at least those first verses, about the Good Shepherd is a parable of a shepherd set in the Palestinian countryside tending his sheep out in the open and hence is uh, threatened from time to time by wolves and thieves and robbers. But context here is everything. In John's Gospel, the discourse on the Good Shepherd is set decidedly and explicitly within the broader context of the Festival of Tabernacles, which was intrinsically connected with Jerusalem and more specifically even the Temple on Mount Zion as the place of redemption and ultimate salvation. So while there's no doubt that the language that is used to express the Good Shepherd Discourse is likely taken from the pastoral scene of shepherding, the direct reference, the first-line reference, is to the mission of Jesus as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep and in doing so establishes himself as the eschatological temple to which all 
redeemed will eventually come and be united in. And so it may be helpful if you want to read quickly, uh, Todd, say the first six verses. There's some language here that might be useful to your hearers to see the temple references. This is John 10, beginning at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. How would you summarize that? Yes, a couple of things. There are two overarching kind of images here. One is, again, temple imagery. The other is Exodus imagery. And so the overarching theme of this parable, if I can just use that language, in the commentary I speak of it as a dark saying, is that Jesus will call out believers from ancient Israel, from Judaism, also from the Gentiles, and will call them out to himself, and in doing so will establish a new and final exodus. That's the language of he will lead them out. This language is directly the language of Exodus, as we know, in the book of Exodus, in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, that he will go before his sheep whom he puts out is explicitly said to be of God who went before his people. You find this very language, perhaps the background text is Isaiah 52, that God will go before his people in the final Exodus. He will go before them as Moses went before Israel in that first exodus. But what I should also point out is distinct temple-oriented language here. The Greek word, for example, that is translated in your translation as sheepfold is aule in the Greek. This Greek term in the broader language is never used of a sheepfold of any kind. It is, however, the word used for a courtyard, whether that be the courtyard of a palace. For example, the word aule is used of the palace of Caiaphas in John 18. More specifically and importantly, however, it was used very frequently of the courtyards of the temple and is used some, I've forgotten the exact number, 30 or 40 times in Ezekiel 40 to 48 of the eschatological temple. So there is temple-oriented language here in this parabolic discourse by which Jesus is articulating himself as the true Davidic king, who will come victoriously into the temple courtyards. As we shall see, Psalm 118 also lies behind this imagery 
and in bringing the messianic rule of God into the courtyards of the temple, the temple then becomes the place of the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the place of peace, prosperity, and redemption. So, just in summary, these first verses have distinctly temple-oriented language. The temple is the final goal and place of redemption, the place to which God will lead his people in a new and eschatological exodus. And then uh, verses 7 through 10, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What would you say of that? Well, here in verses 7 to 10, and then in verses 11 to 16, two images from the initial parabolic saying are especially elaborated. In verses 7 to 10, which you just read, the image of the gate is elaborated. Your translation, which I'm assuming is from the ESV, is that right, Todd? Yes, it is. Okay. It would be better translated gate because the reference, again, is not to a simple door of a sheepfold on the hillside. The reference is to the the architecture of the temple. And behind this language of gate is Psalm 118, most especially, also the psalm that says, lift up the gates, who is this that comes in glory, the Lord of hosts is he, but also Psalm 118, which speaks of the gate of righteousness, that the king of glory or the messianic king will come through. And most likely, in my judgment, in my opinion, specifically, the gate behind this imagery is called the Nicanor Gate. If one can visualize the inner sanctum, the inner precincts of the temple, there was what was called the Court of the Women. And then there were the 15 steps of ascent, which led to the court of the Israelites, where sacrificial altars were located. As you went up those 15 steps of ascent, you went through a gate called the Nicanor Gate. So I think we have here a very kind of sequential and dynamic movement of the Messianic King as he is moving up the steps of ascent, and now he is passing through the gate into the place of sacrifice. That's why I think it's important to note simply the sequence of our discourse. In 7 to 10, you have the gate imagery. Then in 11 to 16, you have the sacrificial imagery. So I'm thinking that this gate is the Nicanor gate, that all who enter in through this gate, they come then to the place of sacrifice, which is, according to John's account now, the place of pasture. 
And this is another important imagery because it was a commonplace in Old Testament proclamation and expectation that the sheep of God, we are the people of his pasture, the people of his hand. Pasture was the image of sheep grazing safely. And so pasture became the image of the redemptive reality of saved Israel. If we keep in mind what I am suggesting is the thematic movement of these verses, namely that Jesus is leading his sheep now up through the Nicanor gate to the place of sacrifice, which is here described as finding pasture, we can come to a distinctively and incredibly important aspect of John's gospel again, and that is that the place of the sacrifice of Jesus is precisely the place of redemption and salvation. And so when he speaks of abundant life, he's not speaking of abundant life such as evangelical preachers might talk about it on television. He's speaking of the eternal life which his sacrifice gives to those who believe in him and are united with him in his sacrifice. So if your readers can visualize as they read these verses, this movement of Jesus as the messianic redeeming king going up the steps of ascent through the gate of Nicanor into the court of the Israelites where there were altars of sacrifice, I think they can perhaps visualize the thematics of these verses. So given all of that, how do we approach verse 11 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep? We'll answer that question with Dr. Bill Weinrich after this. You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. 
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Monday, January the 23rd, we are in John 10 with Dr. Bill Weinreck, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, the New Concordia Commentary on John chapter 7, verse 2 through 1250. We're talking about the Jesus words there in John 10, I am the good shepherd. So given everything that you've said up to this point in our conversation, how do we approach those words? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in verse 11. Well, again, verse 11 and that theme of the good shepherd. And I might just point out that the way John actually gives expression to this is I am the shepherd, the good one. All right. There's this strong, emphatic aspect of his being the good shepherd. But what is also to be noted in this carries through very much through verse 16, is that there's only one characteristic of this shepherd as the good shepherd, and that is that he gives his life for the sheep. So the goodness of the good shepherd lies in his voluntary and willing sacrifice for the life of the sheep. So it is without question, a sacrificial way of speaking. And of course, Jesus is himself that willing sacrifice. But since he says, I will lay down my life for the sheep, he also implicitly is depicting himself as priest. And so this becomes very rich imagery in which Jesus depicts himself both as priest who sacrifices, as well as the sacrifice which is sacrificed by the priest. I might just mention here before we leave this image of the gate, that in the parabolic statement of verses 1 through 6, we are said that the good shepherd enters in through the gate and that the gatekeeper opens to him. Part of the temple imagery is the language of gatekeeper. And most likely, these gatekeepers, the background of this imagery is the role of Levites who stood at the top of those 15 steps of ascent to ensure that no one entered into the place of sacrifice that was not cultically pure. Likewise, in my judgment, the figure that is imaged by the the doorkeeper or the gatekeeper is most likely the father who sends his son into the world precisely to give his life for the life of the sheep. And so his opening the door or opening the gate for the good shepherd, as it were, to invite or to send his son into the place of redemption, which is namely his cross. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. What is he referencing there? Well, 
traditional commentary often saw in the figure of the robber, the figure of the thief, and now here the figure of the hireling, false messianic pretenders. And the New Testament itself actually mentions a couple of these, uh, Thoidus as well as the Egyptian. There was uh, another, Judas the Galilean. So there were indeed a number of, historically speaking, messianic pretenders. And perhaps these images refer obliquely to them in order to say that indeed they were false, but in Jesus we really do have the true and intended messianic shepherd foretold by, especially by, say, Ezekiel 34. And that may be all that is intended, but if we keep more specifically the story as it is told by John in view, then Jesus is probably contrasting himself as the good shepherd with false shepherds, namely the priests of the temple, sacrificial cultists. Keep in mind that the most important passage of the Old Testament that lies as a background, especially for verses 11 to 16, is Ezekiel 34 which speaks of the priests of the temple as fattening themselves instead of the sheep and allowing them to be scattered. The end of this passage in verse 16 will speak again of an ingathering, a leading of the messianic king towards unity. The vision, of course, again is the eschatological exodus, the ingathering of the scattered people of Israel, including the Gentiles in this case, who will be led to a position of communion with each other and with God within the precincts of the eschatological temple. When the hireling now is said to be, by way of his cowardliness, allows the sheep to scatter you can see that there's a very strong contrast between perhaps the sacrificial cultus, such as it existed in that day, which is at best a pale imagery of the sacrifice that Jesus will himself come to make. But in any case, you do have a contrast between the effect of the hireling, which scatters sheep, the image of scattering, of God placing his people by whatever instrumentality into foreign lands was always an imagery of judgment and condemnation. And so the prophets foretold a, a final ingathering, a final exodus, which would be the final redemptive activity of God, which would bring all of his people once again into the unity of his own house where God dwells, a theme that we saw already or see already in the prologue in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us as in a tent or as in a temple, if you want. So the hireling then is a way of presenting strong contrast of the typical Johannine transitional themes 
that the various aspects of the Old Testament, including the Old Testament sacrificial cultus, is now going to be consummated. It's going to reach its perfection, that to which it pointed, namely in Jesus' own sacrifice, by which sacrifice Jesus will gather all into the new precincts of the new temple, which is the body of his own sacrifice. Then, beginning in verse 14, he again says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's also the second time he's described his sacrifice, too. What would you say of these verses? This actually, verses 14 and 15, which you just read, I found them very difficult. Yes, also to kind of understand, but to articulate, because there is a very rich set of associations here that we need at least to recognize so that we can think about them. Now, I must say, those who can look at the Greek text have a certain advantage to those who are dependent upon the English. And in this context, this is what I'm referring to. In verse 11, you have this language, and I'm just quoting now. I am the shepherd, the good one. The shepherd, the good one, lays down his life for the sheep. There are two claims here in verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and secondly, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When one looks at verses 14 and 15, those two aspects begin and conclude these verses. But in between them now, you have the language of mutual knowledge the knowledge which Jesus has of his own, his own sheep, the knowledge which his own sheep has of him, and then also as foundational for this mutual knowledge is the mutual knowledge which the Son has for his Father and the Father for his Son. And so within the statement, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, you have this immense qualification this, I guess it's a qualification, concerning this mutual knowledge of the Son and the Father, as well as the shepherd, which is, of course, the Son, and his sheep. It seems to me, at least, that you have here a deep association of the self and willing sacrifice of Jesus as the Good Shepherd as the locatedness by way of which the mutual knowledge of the Father and the Son is manifested, but by way of that sacrifice, that mutual knowledge of the Son and the Father is proffered to those who receive that sacrifice in faith. And in my judgment, Tom, I think we have Eucharistic overtones in this passage. Here, the giving of the life for the sheep qualified as it is by this mutual knowledge, does not seem to me then to be a statement of what we might call the universal atonement, but rather the specific 
sacrifice and giving into death of the good shepherd for those who are part of his sheep and know him and he knows them even as he knows the father and the father knows him. If this is the case that we have here, kind of a Eucharistic expression in this language of sacrifice and self-knowledge, then we have a wonderful kind of open vista to the significance of the Lord's Supper as we participate it and receive its blessings. One of those blessings being that we now know in this participation the Father, precisely as he who loves us and gives his Son for the life of the world. And in this, likewise, we know Jesus as the Good Shepherd, who actually, by way of the Eucharistic eating and drinking, feeds his sheep in the green pastures of the new temple. So that's kind of how I took this in my elaboration, in my commentary. Again, I was led to these reflections because of the structure of the Greek passage in 14 and 15. If I might just repeat that again, the two statements of verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, is repeated in verses 14 and 15. But in verses 14 and 15, in between those two statements are these two incredible or three statements of mutual knowledge, the shepherd and his sheep, the sheep and the shepherd, as well as the shepherd as the son and the father. It is then a a very rich and by no means simple set of associations that arise from this interesting way of putting things. Dr. Bill Weinrich is our guest. We're in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. As we walk through the I am sayings of Jesus, we'll be in verse 16 where Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Next. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The New Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. 
Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Back, I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Bill Weinreich is our guest. We're in John chapter 10, Jesus' words, I am the good shepherd. In verse 16 here, Dr. Weinreich, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Who are the other sheep? Well, I think it's pretty clear that these other sheep that are not of this aule, of this temple precinct, if you will, are the Gentiles. John's Gospel clearly envisions the apostolic proclamation not only to the Jew but also to the Gentile. And very important background for this second Exodus talk now. There are other sheep that I must gather, I must lead. This is again second Exodus talk and The language of the second Exodus, say, in Ezekiel, which is very important, tends to focus almost exclusively, if not exclusively, on the people of Israel. But when it comes to the important passages, say, in Zechariah 14, which is a Festival of Tabernacles passage, and even more spectacularly, the language of the second Exodus in Isaiah, then it's very clear that the nations— will also participate in this final exodus and will bring the riches of their peoples into the house of the Lord and that kind of thing. So the other sheep, not of this sheepfold, I think is, I think pretty evidently refers to the Gentiles. What is to be noted that Jesus says it is necessary that also these I must lead, it is necessary to lead, and they shall hear. The Greek and the English translation has a future references, and they shall hear my voice. And one might ask the question, by what means or at what point will they hear Jesus' voice? Because nowhere within the scope of John's gospel does Jesus ever address the Gentiles, unless one think of Pilate, he never addresses the Gentiles in any way, shape, or form. So I think we have in these interesting future references, they shall hear my voice and they shall be, or they shall become one flock and one shepherd. These are future references which refer, in my judgment, to the period of the church and the apostolic proclamation, John's gospel is pervaded by missiological intentionality. And this is one such example that by way of the paraclete spirit, the apostolic preacher, the apostolic missionary will preach Christ the crucified And that preachment will be the voice of the shepherd calling them. And those who hear my voice would refer to those Jews as well as those Gentiles who come to faith 
by way of the apostolic and missiological preaching and believe in Jesus as their good shepherd who leads them into the pastures green, which refers, I would hold, both to the sacramental administrations of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But then we have at the very end, and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. Here we have a perfectly good example of that eschatological and final unity that the Jews expected would be instantiated and manifested in the final temple. But within Christian preaching, certainly within the proclamation of the Gospel of John, that new temple, the new place of redemption, is in fact Christ the crucified. And so he will lead them into the place of pastures, verse 10 again, verse 9, verse 10, and there he will feed them as one shepherd. They will commune with him as those who know him and he knows them. I would think he communes them by way of his willing sacrifice. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you, as the synoptics have it. And so we see here, I think, a final vision of the church in its Eucharistic unity that is the final intention and goal of the willing sacrifice of Jesus, the good shepherd who willingly lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This seems very important because he's pointing forward to not only his death, but his resurrection as well. Well, that's correct. What is to be noted here is that now within the Discourse of the Good Shepherd, the Father is now explicitly mentioned for the first time. And so now we see that the Father really has been kind of the, what should I call him, the kind of the gray eminence behind the entire discourse. And indeed, this self-sacrificing of the Son is an expression of the Father's love for the Son. And if we keep in mind John, say, John 3.16, in this manner did God love the world that he gave his only Son. We can see that in the willing sacrifice of the Son, you have the effecting of God's love for the Son, which now is proffered to the world in and through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is kind of this, how did your translation translate this entelay, this commandment? Do you remember there in verse? This charge. This charge. Well, okay, the language is entelay, which means a commandment. And I think that already you have an echo here of that new entelay that of which Jesus speaks 
in chapters 13 and 14, namely that you love one another even as I have loved you. So the ethos of the new community of faith is that of sacrifice out of love for the world, which is, again, manifested and effected in the death of Jesus himself as the very, if I can use this language again, the instantiation, the actually making present and real the love of the Father for the Son. And so that's part of the mystery and the blessing of the incarnation and death of Jesus is that the beloved Son now is the place and the instrument of the Father's love for the world. And so we see that here in in these verses. But one other thing should be noted in verses 17 and 18. And you mentioned the resurrection. But the language, I have exousia to give it. I have exousia, power, authority, by way of being the beloved son of the Father. I have this exousia, this authority to take it up again because of the commandment of my Father. That is to say, this is an expression of the Father's mission. Go, my son, into the world so that through you my love for the world might be effected. This is the kind of the thrust of this commandment. It's not just then a a law that you have to obey. The commandment to redeem is the content of the Son, in a way, certainly in John's Gospel. But the language also expresses, and this is important, the language expresses the willingness of Christ to do this. And so here again we see a major theme of the filial obedience of the Son in John's Gospel. He freely does what the Father's will is, and in freely doing the will of the Father, manifests, makes known what the will of the Father really is. And so the freedom of the Son expresses also the favor of God to redeem the world, the love of God who in his freedom does what is true to his own nature as the God of love, the God of mercy, the God of humility, long-suffering, and so forth. But you are right. The language of resurrection is here. And as we noted last time we talked, and we'll have opportunity to do that again when we talk about the raising of Lazarus, as I think we're scheduled to do. In John's gospel, the power, the reality of resurrection lies within the reality of Christ the crucified. This is a crucial aspect in my judgment for understanding this particular gospel. The resurrection does not lie outside or beyond, let alone does it overcome the sacrifice of Jesus, but rather the resurrection is the manifestation, the revelation of the content of the cross as the instrumentality of the life-giving love of God the Father 
by way of his son. And so in many ways, then, you have a certain kind of redundancy, if you want. I have the exousia to give my life, which is my freedom to do the will of my father, which out of his love for the world is to give life to the world. And so in and through my self-sacrifice, which is, again, the manifestation of God's love for the world, therein and therein alone lies also the eternal life, which is the gold and telos of Jesus' coming. Dr. Bill Weinrich is our guest. We're talking about Jesus' words, I am the good shepherd. His words cause a division among the Jews. We'll find out why next. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Elective abortion is not and never has been medical care. So wrote Dr. Donna Harrison, a wife, mother of five, and grandmother of ten, and also a pro-life advocate. And she wrote those words in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, in which we take up the issue of the pro-life movement after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Sacramental. Historical. Liturgical. You're listening to Issues Etc. Save the date. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky, with visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Look for more information in early 2023 at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life, lutheransforlife.org. Have you ever wished you could see Ad Crucem's products before buying them? Well, you can. Come visit us at our workshop in Littleton, Colorado, and watch how we make our Christmas ornaments and print our icons. Check out the quality and fabric of our church banners, or choose some greeting cards, posters, or jewelry. Of course, if you can't make it to Colorado, we're always open online. For details and directions, visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Bill Weinrich is our guest, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're talking about Jesus' words, I am the good shepherd. To round this off, the last three verses, beginning at verse 19, Dr. Weinrich, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So why do Jesus' words divide his opponents? Well, it's a good question. 
But it is the case, and this is a very good example of it, that throughout this gospel, the words of Jesus, his claims, create division. That is to say, some come to faith, and some, by way of hearing the exact same things, do not. And in a way, I suppose this is a certain mystery of unbelief that one can actually hear with one's own ears the inviting word of God to come and be his his sheep, his dear children. You can see with your eyes the blessings of God. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before all people. And yet, seeing before your eyes the things of God, hearing his inviting speech, the depth of human rebellion still can take hold. And so it is characteristic, though, of John's gospel that the crisis, as John expresses it, sometimes translated judgment, I usually translate it as crisis because It has to do with precisely this feature that by way of Jesus coming into the world, there is now a fact, a reality in the world that divides. It either elicits faith or it strengthens the stubbornness of unbelief. And that's what we see here as well. And of course, this is harsh language. I mean, this is This man speaks as a demon. This kind of harkens back to John 8 that we talked about last time, where Jesus will accuse the Jews of being the children of the devil. And so this deep divide that begins to show itself between Jesus and the unbelieving within the scope of this text, the unbelieving Jew, this divide is deep because it is on the cusp of, of heaven and condemnation. It's on the cusp of life and death, of sight and blindness. And so it's interesting as well that at the very end here of verse 21, there's an echo concerning the healing of the man born blind. How can someone who is under the influence of demons, how can he have open the eyes of the blind. That's a reference to John 9, which indeed is organically related, in fact, to the Good Shepherd discourse of John 10. So as we saw, if you read John 9, the man who was born blind comes to see. He eventually is cast out of the synagogue and Jesus finds him. This is prologue, if you want for the language of John 10, which speaks of Jesus as the good shepherd who will bring his own sheep out from the nations, which in John's gospel are represented by old Israel, the Israel of law, and the temple on Mount Zion made with hands. And so the giving of light, the giving of sight is likewise a metaphor you may remember how we started uh, the, our last conversation in John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. He who walks in my light, that's Exodus talk. God 
led the people of Israel through the wilderness by way of a pillar of light, right? And so there are various metaphors, there are various narratives that speak then or images that speak of this exodus. The giving of sight is one of them in the discourse of the Good Shepherd. It's more explicitly Exodus language. He will go before them. He's the Messianic King who will lead the ingathered, redeemed into the temple, the place of his own sacrifice. There they will, in freedom, go in and out. That's the language of freedom. Uh, the doors of the walls are open. There's no threat from enemy and that kind of thing. And so in freedom and ultimate and everlasting peace and safety, they will feed on the green grass of the pastures of God, which again, if I might, I understand to be a Eucharistic reference. Finally, with about a minute here, Dr. Weinrich, what is the comfort of this saying of Jesus, I am the good shepherd? Well, it obviously is a proclamation of identification, which is, if you will, kind of in contrast to an identification that we must ask about ourselves. If Jesus says to me, I am the shepherd, the good one, it is reasonable that I ask of myself, why should I need a good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep? And so behind this language is, of course, the ultimate need of the human race to recognize its fallen nature, its being bound by sin and the corruption of death, and indeed, the judgment of God against it. This is the language of, again, of scattering into the nations, that God judges his people by way of their idolatry and immoralities. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he locates for me the sinner, the one who is condemned to death, to be the instrument, but also the place, because I want to keep in mind John's emphasis on the temple as the place of redemption and salvation. He is the place of redemption. And that leads me then to another place where now I am not. And to make kind of the whole conversation into a kind of a short-term summary here, that other place to which I am led and therefore to which I wish to follow him is the place, as I would understand the dynamics of this text, it is the place where Christ offers his body and blood for the life of the world in the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. Dr. Bill Weimrich is professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of The Issues, Etc., Book of the Month for January, the New Concordia Commentary on John chapter 7, verse 2 through 12, verse 50. Find out more about this new John Commentary at our website, issuesetc.org, or by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Next time, we'll have Dr. Weimrich lead us in a teaching on I Am the Resurrection and the Life in John chapter 11. Dr. Weinrich, thank you. 
Thank you, Todd. Thank you very much. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Pastor Hans Feeney about the religion of the secular left. We'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, discussing the transfiguration with Pastor Peter Bender. And we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit,